This is the Salvationist Podcast. I'm Kristen Austinson. It's an understatement to say that the world of healthcare has been turned upside down by the COVID-19 pandemic. Business as usual is gone. And that's not always a bad thing. For the Salvation Army's Toronto Grace Health Centre, it has provided opportunities for innovation and creativity to rethink how healthcare is done. Just as the pandemic was beginning, the centre launched a pilot project called the Remote Care Monitoring Program. Using a pendant and the power of technology, the program allows elderly and at-risk patients to receive the healthcare they need from the comfort of their own home. In this episode of the podcast, we'll visit with Donna White, who's part of the program. Living in an apartment on her own, this 77-year-old Toronto resident feels safer knowing that help is only a button-click away. But first up, we've got Jake Tran, President and CEO of the Health Centre, who will take us through how the program works and why it's so necessary. So I just want to start by asking you, when did this program begin and where did the idea come from? The, the program began approximately two years ago um, and uh, it was a, a pilot project. And the goal was to be able to bring, at the time, patients home um, so that they're not relying on hospital capacity. And the, the, the notion being two years ago was the beginning of the pandemic. And so what we needed to reserve hospital beds for are those patients that are sick with COVID-19 and the ability to bring clients home and be able to bring them home safely with remote care monitoring and using technology to have that in touch with the client or with the patient while they are at home um, allows for that extra security and extra safety for mm-hmm. people at home. Yeah. So can you tell me what's actually involved in remote care monitoring and explain the different components? There's, there's quite a bit of components, and I'll start off with the, the non-medical side. So essentially, so if we have a, a, a client um, who wants to go home and they, they tend to be very forgetful. So the, the simplest way of monitoring them is if they don't open their fridge, um, during meal times, for example, we get an alert uh, because they've not opened the fridge. We get an alert, and what we do is we call them to remind them that it's time for your meals, and, and that then allows them to ensure that they they are eating properly, they're getting the nutrition, and that they don't um, uh, become sick or, or, or to the point where they'll they'll need to call nine one one. The other uh, type of monitoring is the false. So they, they carry a pendant with them or a watch. And what tends to happen is if they fall, we automatically get a notification. And then we have direct communication with them in terms of helping them out, uh, walking them through. We then make decisions uh, with them in terms of do they need a PSW to come in to help them to assist them or do they need 911? So we're actually acting as the middle person having direct communication um, after a fall or and, and, and to work with them in terms of um, getting them to safety, whether that means calling 911 or sending a um, personal support worker 
into their home to support them. Um, another piece of technology that we also have in place is um, if they wander. So we have uh, um, uh, our older population uh, living with frailty in the community where they tend to wander out of their house um, and not realizing that they're wandering out. So we're able to uh, geofence their house. So if if they it, it's set up so that they're not supposed to leave their home at a set time, we can actually set that up. And if the door opens at 2 a.m. in the middle uh, in the morning, then we get notification, and so we then connect with them or with uh, their loved ones so that we ensure that they come back home. Or if they are community somewhere and they're not supposed to, we are able to trace them. A good example is we have um, uh, people who've gone missing from their home to find out or wandering um, on Queen Street in the middle of the night. So we're able to track where they're at and bring them back home. So these are some of the things that we do from a non-medical perspective. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's really incredible. Like to think that you could look after people and meet their needs so immediately and yet not be there. Um, how many patients are currently involved in the program? Right now, as of today, we received over 1,500 referrals. Wow. Um, and we do discharge them from if, if they get better and they don't need mm-hmm. the system. We do take the technology away. Um, currently, in terms of actively being monitored, we're between 11 to um, 11, 11 to 1,200 clients who are actively being monitored. And for those who, so a good example is if, if they're being monitored and if something comes up, so if there's frequent falls, what we also do is we have our wellness check. So we automatically put the client into our wellness check team. And so either a social worker or a PT or a physiotherapist, occupational therapist will then connect with them uh, to make sure that they're okay, that they're doing fine over time. We will also connect with their primary care as well. So they're uh, the family doctors if required, just so that they're being seen by the family physicians as well. So creating a, a more a, a, an integrated care. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is a huge number. Um, what's the criteria for a patient to come on board with remote care? So the, the we left the criteria very vague because at the time, what we wanted to be able to do is we want to be able to bring patients or, you know, they're in the hospitals, I'll call them patients, but to bring them home. The criteria is that one, we're looking at the older population living with frailty. They have risks of forgetfulness, of dementia, of falls, um, and what we're, and that they have a, a health card. Having said that, we do have clients without health card um, because we want to be able to serve the, the general population. So the criteria is actually quite vague. And the key piece of the criteria is anyone living with frailty uh, in the community and anyone with risk um, in the community whereby we can actively prevent unnecessary um, mm-hmm. use of the health system. Right. And, you know, with an aging population in the country, I imagine that a program like this is only going to become more and more relevant and useful to the population. Um, So just thinking of that, what would you say are the key benefits of remote care monitoring? Our initial goal was to prevent um, unnecessary hospitalization. 
And so we, the first goal was why live in the hospital when we can find a way of bringing them home safely, safely being having the ability to monitor them. So that's key number one. What we're also doing is making use of technology um, to monitor them in the home and proactively connect them to their primary care so and to our wellness team. So proactively preventing them from calling 911 or from being hospitalized. Uh, so those are the two big benefits. And, and you know, the other piece is the ability to use technology um, rather than health resources. Given that in the past few years, health human resources is, is a valuable commodity and, and we need to use the resources appropriately. And if we can introduce technology to do it, which then reduces the need for health human resources. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, as you said, we've seen incredible strain the last couple of years. So anything that reduces that is is such a huge benefit to society and the healthcare system. Um, can you give me a couple of examples of sort of real life situations, how this uh, kind of system plays out? Yes. So we, for example, we have an 85 year old in an emergency department. This patient does not need uh, to be admitted. However, can't go home because no one's there to look after her. She lives alone. So this would be the ideal scenario where she goes home with our remote care monitoring and immediately once you turn it on, there is that second monitoring group, if you will, and be able to oversee how she is doing at home. And when she goes home, um, a lot of times what we find is she would then forget, um, the client would then forget to have their meals. What we do is we call them and it tends to happen quite a bit where, you know, they wake up and they forget to have breakfast because they didn't open their fridge or they forget their lunch or they forget the dinner. We then call them uh, within the hour and remind them that that's what they need to do. And we don't need to use their phone. Their pendant acts as a two-way communication with us. Um, so they always will then have it. Um, and then that will then allow us to monitor the client in the home. If they fall at home, we then directly talk to them uh, using the pendant. Um, and if they need to see their um, their um, family doctor, we then connect them to their family doctors as well. So it just allows us to then um, really have a close view, a close look of what they do at home. And we're we're at the point when when um, this client is at home, we're also able to detect. Um, how often they spend in certain rooms. So we now can map out their normal activities. And if there's something that's out of the ordinary, a good example is they all of a sudden today they spend, if on a normal occasion in the morning, they spend half an hour in the bathroom because of morning care. And now all of a sudden she spends an hour, we get an alert. So what we do is call and say, are you okay? Are you stuck? Um, and our prime example is we have a client who is using a walker and we notice that she has not moved from her living room in one spot for a good hour. And then it increases to an hour and a half on the same day. And then when we saw that it was two hours, we called just to find out that she was not able to move because her walker was stuck in the carpet. 
and no one comes to see her until the next eight hours. So we're able to then dispatch somebody to go help her so she's not stuck in one place for the next eight hours. Wow, that's incredible. And does that technology do it automatically? Like it, it's, it learns itself and you don't have to program that in? It, it does it itself um, because it learns your norm. So it learns the person's and it becomes more individualized and it knows over time and we set limits um, so that it doesn't go off all the time. So we set limits. Um, so we start off and in the first week or so as it's learning, we don't know what the norm is. And then over time, the longer they are um, on the system, we know and we can set limits. So I know, you know, a client is in the bathroom in the morning, usually half an hour. So we set a, you know, 15 minute minimum. Uh, in this case, the more important piece is a, a 60 minute max in the bathroom. So if they spend more than 60 minutes in the bathroom, the question is, did they fall or are they stuck? And so we'll call them as a um, safety measure. So making use of artificial intelligence in this case has been quite helpful. Donna White has been a part of the remote care monitoring program for about six months. Now 77 years old, she lives in a Christian retirement home on the west side of Toronto. That was how she found out about the program from another resident in her building. One of the gals in my building had one of these Hmm. and um, I look after the yogurt group and she was sitting there with hers and I said, oh, can I feel that? How heavy is it? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, that's really light. Um, I said, the one that I had tried one mm-hmm. and it was much heavier and I it, I was always taking it off because I was so aware of it. This I don't even think of it mm-hmm. until I clunk it. And so we talked about it a bit and then she said, and it was free. And I said, come on. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, let's face it, most of those seniors are on uh, fixed budgets, and some of it's very minimal. If you don't have a a pension plan or something, you're living on about $20,000, $22,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's going to give you something that you need for free, it's like, are you? (laughs) Donna was already interested in getting a medical alert device after a close call at her sister's house last winter. I had an incident in March. I was at her place, they were in Florida, and I was filling a bird feeder. Hmm. And I slipped on the basin snow and went down. And I couldn't get up because I have artificial knees. Hmm. So I had to crawl across the yard. They have a, a railing that comes down their steps. So as soon as I touched the railing, I could get up. I just need something to hold on to. Right. So I got up and something went because some of the snow and stuff was melting. And I remembered I had lost a friend last year who wore one of these, but not yours, another one. And she had made me promise when she was dying that I would get one. Yeah. And uh, so I said, yes, yes, I will. So when I fell that day, I thought, I did promise her that I would, okay, I got to look into it. Donna hasn't had to use the alert system yet, but she's glad to have it. That's the big thing. It's like getting insurance. You hope you don't need it, but if you do, at least it's there. So So I'm a happy camper. Yeah. Does everything I want it to do. And uh, I, I just think it's terrific. The fellow who started this, 
he deserves a big pat on the back. Jake Tran is grateful for the feedback he gets from clients such as Donna, as it only helps make the program even better. Every quarterly, what we do is we um, request for um, feedback from patients, families, staff, as well as our referral sources. So from a patient and, and family perspective, um, they really appreciate the fact that someone is assisting uh, and we're not intruding in, in their privacy either. So the family, uh, family members and caregivers truly appreciate the fact that someone having oversight over a loved one at home, and especially in these days where um, a lot of the family members work, so they can't be home uh, looking after their loved one all the time because they need to be at work. So this is a second set of eyes, if you will, overseeing safety so that if something were to happen, that we get alert. Yeah, for sure. And I imagine this has been even more valued in the um, pandemic because there have been periods where all of us have had to be locked down or isolated, which means probably families were that much less able to, to go visit their loved ones. Right. And then, and then the beauty is we're, we're able to set it up so that if they, if a family member or a caregiver would like to be the first to be in contact with their loved ones at home, that can be addressed as well. So, we don't necessarily have to be the first in contact. A family level can be that. And because we find that the majority of our population are the older population living with frailty in the community, um, they can simply tap their pendant or their watch and uh, they can speak with their loved ones uh, right there and then. So we don't need the use of their Wi-Fi or their phone. They have direct connection with their loved ones right away or with us, depending on how it's set up. So, and certainly a good way to uh, have communication as required, giving them the privacy uh, that they need um, and ensuring their safety while they are at home. You know, the idea of aging in place or, or successful aging in the community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm um, just thinking from sort of a higher level about the program, how would you say it aligns with the Army's mission overall? It's interesting, the Army's mission in terms of serving the marginalized population and to be able to care for them in the community, the majority of our population, I would say 70% of our population, are the marginalized um, and those with uh, medical need, those with um, significant frailty, um, and we're, we're able to serve that population. Uh, and to, to us here at the hospital, it's an important piece because now we're able to take uh, people home uh, who's marginalized and who may not be able to afford uh, such technology, but we're able to then provide this set technology so that they can be at home safely as well. Yeah, that's so key because many older folks are on fixed incomes, and I imagine that this kind of care could be extremely costly. Right. Um, now that you're over two years into the program, what would you say you've learned since it began? How has it evolved and you know, has anything surprised you through the process that you uh, didn't anticipate at the beginning? Um, we, in terms of what we've learned, we've learned that to run a program at this scale, I've never ever thought that we'll have 1,500 uh, clients in the program. And as with any program, right before the pilot stage, you don't know if you have for lack of a better word, all your ducks lined up. 
We don't know if we have all of the risks, all of the safety in place. And it's all of what I've learned is it's about taking calculated risk. And it's about having a big picture in terms of where you want the program to go, but start small. That's what I have learned the most. And to be very honest with you, in our first three months, we only have two patients on the program when we first started. And we started really small. And what I've learned from that is start small so you can learn from every possible mistake you can make and the things that you don't think about. And it's not, and, and you know, there, there's no playbook out there. There's, there's no instructions and instructions don't exist. So you learn as you go. So by starting small, the mistakes are also smaller and it allows you to learn. The other piece that, that's also important is where we, we did not push this program onto the clients. What we did was we asked if they're interested in, in the program and those who agreed what we did was, and that what was really useful was we brought them back as part of the advisory committee. So the patients, the family came in and, and worked with us and said, this is what we would prefer. This ABC works. This does not work. And because they are the user of the system, their feedback has played a, an integral success to the program. And because we took what they've experienced and made changes to the the program in the past two years. That's brilliant. And what an incredible way to involve people in their own care. Right. And at the end of the day, they are using it. So why not make use of their experience, which is much, much more valuable. I mean, traditionally, we think about um, expertise. And in this case, it's interesting. Really, there is no significant expertise because it's a new concept, reasonably new concept. Um, and so why not use those with the experience to help you co-design the program? And so that's what we've done. And it's been quite a successful journey uh, from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, as you said, this is a relatively new concept. Is, the, is this the first program of its type in Ontario or in, in the country? Even? Uh, we're not the only one, but there are similar programs, but not to our extent, the way we've built it out. Our model from a remote care, there are a few remote care monitoring uh, system uh, in Ontario, but what we've done is we, we took both a medical and in my opinion, the, the most crucial part is the non-medical monitoring. So we have, although we have the ability to monitor uh, clients in the community in terms of their vital signs, um, which is an important piece. Um, what we've also been able to do is more relevant, if you will, are the non-medical pieces like the falls, um, the forgetfulness, the, 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 the wandering. Those are the pieces that we've been able to put in place that, and, and it's unique. And making use of technology and relying less on human resources and having a team to support them in the home when the need arises. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of uh, expanding, you mentioned that you're sort of looking to um, scale up, as you said. Can you talk to me about that and what your sort of future plans are for the program? But, but my goal, my goal is to be able to, right now we've, um, we've expanded. The, the initial goal in the first year was Toronto Grace Patients. 
those that then very quickly thereafter, we've expanded to um, um, the Midwest Ontario Health Team, and then we've expanded to Toronto um, right now. And I'm going to fast forward it a little bit. So as of today, we are our geography, our referral from Burlington to Bell, uh, Belleville from Lake Ontario to Lake Simcoe. So that's where we're at. The majority of the clients are in the core, uh, in the core in Toronto and Central, uh, such as York Region. Um, but our goal is build to regionalize the program and work with other um, jurisdictions in Ontario, so that we're able to then expand it and scale this to other regions as well. That's amazing. I I hope to hear more stories going forward uh, about how this program is positively impacting people's lives. Yeah, is we're we're actually doing. Uh, research studies on it as well. So that's the other angle that um, that I was very interested in is um, what types of clients um, are we able to care for in the home? Um, so we have that piece uh, from a research perspective. We're also looking at, are we able to avoid 911 call? Are we able to, or how many clients are we able to proactively prevent hospitalization? Um, so we're working with a, a number of research team, uh, both quantitative, qualitative, and mixed methods to look at the program and to evaluate uh, actual evaluation in terms of client evaluation um, qualitatively, but we're also looking at a mixed method to look at the program in general and where, where and then the impact of the program from a health system perspective. So we're working with the different universities, like the uh, University of Toronto, Queen's University, and the University of Waterloo. Hmm. That's great. Um, do you have any preliminary results thus far in terms of qualitative, quantitative uh, impact? Quantitative, we do not as yet, um, but we do have people looking at data. Um, qualitative, I put forward a, um, um, a an experience-based co-design um, because we're using families and patients as part of the uh, um, co-design. So we actually put forward the co-design piece. And the goal is to be able to create different pathways. Um, while folks are in the hospital, um, how can we then create different pathways to discharge uh, patients into the community successfully? Um, what are some of the barriers that we're looking at? What are some of the uh, barriers, facilitators, coming out of different experiences, both not only from the pay, from the, the staff, from the caregivers, from the patient, and from administrators as well. And so we're able to then hopefully to co-design uh, different, and with the result of creating different pathways into uh, bringing uh, people back home into the community, living in their home. That's that's where we're at, and uh, I'm hoping that in a year's time that we be able to present a uh, both the qualitative, quantitative, and the mixed method uh, research study. Yeah, that's great. I look forward to reading that. Um, well, that is it for me. I just want to thank you again so much for your time today. That's great. Thank you, uh, Kristen. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Salvationist podcast. For more episodes, visit salvationist.ca slash podcast.